It's a, a federal and now state program okay. that's trying to incentivize basically a high level of historic preservation. Okay. So the federal state government is going to give you a tax break on the renovation that you do of a, of a building. So in the federal case, which is available in every state, uh, it's 20% credit okay. on qualified costs. And on the state level, it varies by state, but it's anywhere from maybe 15 to 30%. In Cincinnati or in Ohio, it's 25%. Same in Texas, actually. So combined, 45% of your project cost is going to come as a credit. Okay. So spend a million bucks in qualifying costs. You have a $450,000 tax credit, which can be used against your personal taxes. If you have a $450,000 tax liability, oh, actually, no, I have this credit. You pay no tax. Yep. <laughs> so that's the basic idea. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. Today's episode of The Fort is brought to you by none other than Fort Capital. Are you a commercial real estate broker out there with an off-market Class B industrial deal between the 10 and $75 million range? Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including a bonus, the ability to co-invest, and exclusive partner trips to partners who close deals with us. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. John, welcome to the show and thank you for coming all the way from Cincinnati to Fort Worth, Texas. It means a lot. Yep. Happy to. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yep. I hope you have a good time while you're here. I'm sure. Uh, let's get started with a little bit about your background kind of growing up and what led you to kind of the current company that you run today. Yeah, so I'm originally from uh, near Albany, New York, okay. Amsterdam, city of maybe 10,000 people. Um, went to undergrad there, Binghamton University, and then went to grad school in Cincinnati for MBA, so engineering MBA. Um, and the MBA program brought me to Cincinnati to begin with. Okay. Otherwise, you know, probably like most people didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was just bumming around Cincinnati, graduated. I, I worked for a very small software company for two years as a project manager. And... Uh, kind of got interested in real estate on the side. And I think it always been kind of in my heart and mind, but Cincinnati yeah. was like, you know, a good place to to start it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just as like a side project, we found this shell of a building, you know, uh, three stories, 2,000 square feet, and we bought for 5,000 bucks. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, totally bombed out, like no windows, no roof, uh, you know, pretty major like, masonry work required and stuff. But it seemed small enough and cool enough that I was interested in, and kind of just started that way on the side. And um, yeah, so a year into that, basically quit my job like a fool and uh, jumped in full time yeah. uh, with my company Kunst that I've been running since 2015. It's Kunst. Yeah, Kunst, yeah. What's that mean? Uh, it's a German word. Uh, I saw one of the questions on Twitter was, why'd yeah. you name it that? It's close to a yeah a word we can't say on radio. Yeah. But um, yeah, so Kunst is a German word, the German word for art. The neighborhood that we primarily develop in is over the Rhine. So there's German roots there. A lot of my history is, is German. So cool. it seemed like a nice tie and also a 
nice short domain name. I love it. <laughs> you are the first person to ever be on this podcast that bought a building for a dollar per square foot. <laughs> what did you say? It was yeah, maybe two dollars. Yeah, two dollars <laughs> a square foot. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. Before we even get into that, what what was that project? Because clearly it was successful and it made you want to do more. But what was the the project? What was the goal? And how did it work out? Yeah. So I think I uh, I came into it. You know, I heard Mark Laurie maybe say like missionary and mer- uh, missionary and mercenary. Yeah. And I think I came into a lot more missionary. Mm-hmm. I just saw this uh, cool building. You know, I, I liked uh, history, architecture, cities, whatever. And that was my primary motive in, in this building. And then also that it was possible. It was $5,000. Like, I, I think I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> can you even finance it for 5000 or do you just pay all cash? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, yeah, purchase yeah. is all cash. Yeah. Actually, most of ours, are the purchase is just cash because they're, you know, relatively not that expensive to buy and most of the cost is construction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how it got started. And, and what did you do with that project? You fixed it up. Yeah. So it was it out. totally vacant, hadn't been lived in probably for 40 years. Um, but you know, good bones, beautiful historic building, uh, the original cornice and plaster and all this stuff, the original floors, which we kept. So yeah, we, we totally renovated it. We used historic tax credits, uh, which, you know, I know we'll talk about that was, that was the first one. Someone just told me it was interesting, these tax credits. And uh, a consultant maybe foolishly sent me an example of them. I said, oh, I, it's just like a 20-page PDF. I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, yeah, so kind of, you know, stumbled through that first one and figured it out. But yeah, so it's three apartments. Total renovation was like 150000 Okay. Um, and we rented it out for three years and then sold it and, you know, did pretty well. Did pretty well. Uh, so give me a little background on uh, just what you do at Kunst. Like, what are y'all focused on? Yeah, so I started the company in 2015. We do historic renovations in urban Cincinnati. So it's really just downtown in this over the Rhine neighborhood. Um, We completely renovate all new everything, new roof, HVAC, plumbing, a total kind of gut renovation. There's pretty much nothing there anyways. Yep. And then we rent them out as apartments and um, using these historic tax credits. We've done the tax credits on every project. It's a key part of what we do. And we right now would not do a project without them. Um. And yeah, we don't really have an intent of like how long we're going to hold or if we're forced to sell or even refinance. We're yeah. kind of the tax credits provide a lot of liquidity and we're fine just to hold the buildings until it makes sense. And we've sold one. We're working to sell two more. So we'll sell when it makes sense or we'll hold when it makes sense. Cool. And uh, and everything is multifamily. Do you do any commercial? It's all apartments. Okay. Some of them have first floor commercial. We just actually have our first like commercial, first floor commercial tenant. Okay. Uh, I don't know a damn thing about Cincinnati. I, I, <laughs> I know it's in Ohio, um, but can you give me a little bit of background just on the market, like how big it is, how many of these neighborhoods and projects there are to do? Like, how big is your market? Yeah, so around you know late 1800s, it was one of the biggest cities in the country, maybe top five. It was, it was you know the Chicago before Chicago became a thing. Um, so it sort of has the infrastructure and the bones of a, of a massive city. Yeah. Right? If you were downtown, you'd think it could be you know, lower Manhattan or you know, Chicago or something. So uh, that's what it feels like. And I think that's what I'm drawn to. Like you can feel that the energy is there and the possibilities there Yeah, in the bones, the historic bones in our case. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the metro area I think is maybe 2 million. The, the urban area is like 300,000. The true like downtown is only like 15,000. Okay. Um, uh, Procter & Gamble's headquartered there. Uh, Macy's was, but they left. Kroger is headquartered there. Um, major research university, hospitals. Okay. Um, and I think like a lot of cities, probably St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Louisville, uh, the the migration is probably a lot actually from the suburbs. Okay. You know, millennials 
you know, graduate and, or, you know, even the generation after are now graduating and don't want to live in the suburb they grew up in, maybe they want to move downtown. And so that's kind of a lot of our migration is from the regional area and from the suburbs of Cincinnati. Okay. And with, uh, within that market, are, do you do deals in lots of different kind of sub markets or are they all kind of in the same area? All in the same area. Okay. The, our, for our, you know, we have, I think 14 buildings now The two furthest are probably a mile and a half apart. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And is that cause it's a great area or that's the only place in town where you can do historic tax credit deals or. Yeah. So one of the requirements for the tax credits is that they're in a historic district. And mm-hmm. so there's over the Rhine and parts of downtown are all automatically in this historic district. Okay. And so that makes it pretty ripe. Um, and there's a lot of vacant buildings because everyone left in the fifties and sixties. So it's kind of this perfect. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I got it. All right. Let's look in, let, let's dive into tax, historic tax credits. Yeah. Um, I've heard about them forever and candidly know very little about them. So I'm going to ask the most elementary questions and then we'll try and get more detailed, but let's just start with what is a historic tax credit? Yeah. So, uh, it's a, a federal and now state program okay. that's trying to incentivize basically a high level of historic preservation. Okay. So the federal state government is going to give you a tax break um, on the renovation that you do of a, of a building. So uh, in the federal case, which is available in every state, uh, it's 20% credit okay. on qualified costs. And on the state level, it varies by state, but it's anywhere from maybe 15 to 30%. In Cincinnati or in Ohio, it's 25%. Same in Texas, actually. So combined 45% of your project cost is going to come as a credit. Okay. So spend a million bucks in qualifying costs. You have a $450,000 tax credit, which can be used against your personal taxes. If you have a $450,000 tax liability, oh, actually, no, I have this credit. You'd pay no tax. Yep. (laughs) So that's the basic idea. Okay. And okay. So you have these districts where historic tax credits can be used. You've identified a building um, and you said that you know, up to 45%. So you get it in the form of a credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can use it against your personal tax liabilities. With When you have LPs, how do, how do you distribute that credit amongst the LPs or like how do they receive the benefit? Yeah, so the state tax credit can be distributed however you want to owners of owners in the LLC. So it can be to the LPs, GP, you know, whoever. It can, 99% can go to Wilmer no matter how much he's invested in the project as yeah. long as he's an owner. Um, so it's really easy in, in Ohio, and that's the case, not in every state, but in, in many of them. You can just choose you know, how you want to distribute it, and you can distribute it to the LPs. Um, the federal is a little more complicated. You have to, you can only use the credit up to the percentage you own in the LLC. Okay. Um, so you can technically sell it. You know, I could sell it to you. You become a de facto 99% owner of the LLC, um, and then you can use 99% of the credit. But it's, you know, then you have to get lawyers and all this stuff. How do y'all use the credits? Uh, so the state credit is refundable in Ohio. So it just comes as cash. They just send you cash. So you yeah. finish the project. Do, well, we'll get into how it works, but you finish the project, say, here's what we spent. And then they wire you cash. Yeah. It's the same as a tax refund. I mean, the first time I got it, it was like, oh, there, you know, the first one was very small. $40,000, like literally direct deposit. I was like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> this is interesting. <laughs> Thank you, government. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's rare that the the government money flow works that way, but uh, yeah. but in the state of Ohio, it does. So so that one's quite good. And then, but the federal credit, um, it's not refundable, and so using that against liability, we you know at the beginning I didn't know enough about it, and now we're working more to either making sure that LPs can use it, and then it's part of their returns, or we're selling it to someone that can use it. And if you were to sell it to someone who could use it, you would just take the cash and then distribute that to LPs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then when the state sends it to you, you take the cash and I presume distribute that back to LPs. Yeah. And mostly, 
you know, the LPs are going to have the early kind of cash flow until we get into a promote or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the state credit is normally paying back say 70 or 80% of initial capital. And does the credit come, uh, does the cash come once the project's completed or do you get it along the way? Only if if you're using the credit, getting it from the government, only when the project is done. Okay. Potentially, if you sell it, you can get that cash earlier. Okay. All right. So you've found a deal in a historic tax credit district. Uh, you want to do the deal. Uh, how do you begin the process of getting a tax credit? Yeah, so it's an application. Uh, you typically will do the state and federal at the same time. There's a, a lot of the application which overlaps. And so you just kind of do them together. Okay. Um, the federal credit is much more interested in what you're doing in the interior of the building. Okay. So the incentive is really like a much higher level of preservation. It's not just renovate an old building. It's what are you going to do with that door? What are you going to do with this window? All this stuff. So you have like a 20-page PDF, which is this is the current conditions. It has the original windows, has the original doors, this plaster molding you can see in this photo. And then you're going to say what you're going to do. We're going to keep that plaster molding. Oh, we're going to put new windows in, et cetera. Uh, and that's that's the federal piece. You're basically applying to say, we are going to do this high level historic preservation. And these are the details of it. Mm-hmm. And that goes through this kind of continual review process where their motive is like maximum preservation. And your motive is like, Okay, let's be reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the state credit is includes that. So you have to get through that part. But then it's much more financially motivated. So um, do you have the funds to complete the project? What's the timeline? Uh, what's the poverty in the area? How many jobs are you creating? All that stuff. And yep. that's scored out of 100. Okay. And in Ohio, it's competitive. And so only the top scores win. So if you just came in and say, hey, no, I don't really have the money and uh, I'm not hiring anyone to do this. I'm just handyman Joe, whatever. Like, you're probably not going to win. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if it's a really strong financial project, then you get the credit. And that's what the state of Ohio cares about. They're they're trying to, like, generate, you know, jobs and income. And how many times a year does uh, Ohio approve credits? Is it like a lottery system that you submit and once a year you get approved? Or are they doing it every month? Or? Uh, you apply twice a year. So now it's basically like February and... Uh, August. Okay. And so you find out about the credits like June and December. Okay. And that's the only two windows you can apply. So before going for the application, when you've identified a property, what is everything, what's all the work that you've done before you go to application? Obviously, you've I- already identified what you're going to save and who you're going to hire, but what's all the upfront work you need to get done before you even go apply? Yeah. So assuming we've bought the building, you know, before we'd even buy it, like we'd make sure it qualifies for the credits. Right. It's in a historic district. It's old enough and whatever. Yeah. Um, so assuming all that, once we're about to apply, um, in the best case, we have full architectural plans. Everything is well documented, full photos and stuff. Um, and, you know, you go into the application with that. It's just much easier yeah. rather than like, hey, here's a 70 percent plan. And they'll sort of conditionally approve that. Then you say, oh, wait, actually, we change it. And you have to like run in these circles. And yeah. you know, we figured that out over time of like, if you can just start with this is our exact plan and you give feedback based on that, it's a lot easier. And so if they give you feedback along the way, you're missing a few things, you go back and revise it and then bring it back to them. Yeah. And they're, they are very good with that. They want you to get the credit. You know, they're trying to incentivize this development. Yeah. Um, and so you apply in February and until June, it's pretty much constant revisions, maybe three or four. Uh, going back and forth. Well, they'll say like, hey, you said you're going to you know, get rid of this door, but we really we require that you keep it. Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that. Okay, well, you've done 14 of them. I would imagine the first like one or two was probably a lot of back and forth, <laughs> yeah. a lot of work. 
you know, now you're on 14, it's probably a lot simpler. What are the things that you did wrong on like the first two? You're uh, not wrong, but took a lot more time that you just don't do now. It's just obvious how to do it. Yeah, I think one thing early on is I, I tried to be a little sneakier of like, if I just provide five photos, they won't have much to give feedback on. Yeah. And which sounds good. But then they're like, okay, we need 80 more photos because we, you know, we clearly can't see all these parts of the yeah. building. Um, and so then you have to go back, take the photos and do the whole thing again. So, um, so that's one. I think it's just, you know, more information is probably better. The, the plainer that you can make it is the better. Um, you know, often cases, people that are kind of historic preservationists, uh, they may not necessarily be architects or even developers. And so, you know, really deep architectural details mm -hmm. is going to get lost. And so, yeah. you know, the simpler that you can make it, uh, the better. Um, yeah, I think those are the two main ones. And then, yeah, just being well set up at the beginning because, right. you know, if you're revising at the same time they're reviewing, it's just a nightmare. Do you have to own the property before you can even submit an application or can you have it under contract? You have to own it or be allowed by the owner to apply by the time they're awarded. Okay. Yeah. And are, is it federal that's uh, nitpicking the plans or is it state? Only federal. Okay. Um, and they're out of Washington, I assume? Yeah, sorry. It's That's all for the federal application, but mm -hmm. it's a state. Uh, it's first the state group that's reviewing it. So okay. in our case, they're in Columbus. It's um, the State Historic Preservation Office, SHPO. So they're reviewing all those details. And then they pass it off to Washington. The, it's the National Park Service. Okay. Yeah. Like along that way, you mentioned a lot of pictures. Do they actually come to the, like physically come to the property? So they have the right at any point, including up to five years after the project, to come visit the property. Uh, they typically don't because I imagine that would be impossible. Yeah. Uh, we've had, you know, and we've done 35 projects, including 20 basically as consultants or partnerships, you know, you know, 14 of our own. Right. Um, they've probably come three times. So it's pretty rare, but they can. They can. Yeah. And like when you're done with the project, does even somebody from the state at least show up to see that it's all done and you just send them pictures of a done it's, building? Yeah, it's mostly done by photos. Okay. In these buildings, you mentioned saving like doors and crown molding and windows. Do you have to save everything or do you have to save a percentage of everything? Yeah. So uh, I think one misconception, which we've heard a, a few times lately, is like there has to be a lot of historic character left in order to qualify for the tax credits. Right. That's actually not the case. Like there's no prerequisite of like historic character. Yeah. It's that the building is old enough in a historic district and it hasn't been like totally butchered. If it was a 1910 building, but it has like a huge addition on the front, you know, you can't even tell yeah. and maybe, but otherwise, like if there's nothing left in the interior, you're fine. Yeah. And you know, the sneaky thing is it's actually probably better because you have to save less. Right. <laughs> Not necessarily what I'm interested in, maybe, but like, yeah, it's actually probably better. So, um, but their typical rule of of what to preserve is if it's there, you pretty much have to keep it. Okay. If it's not there, they're not going to make you rebuild it or imagine what was there or replicate. Uh, it just kind of has to be compatible. I'm not trying to skirt the rules. I'm not a rule <laughs> skirter. But I would imagine if I bought a building and there was something like a door that I just, you couldn't, can you not just go into the property and remove everything you want to remove before you start sending pictures? Yeah, you... Uh, how, do they, how do they hold you accountable to that? You technically cannot do any construction until it's approved. That's, that's it. <laughs> that's the answer. <laughs> yeah. um, 
And is most of what you're buying, like it hasn't been touched for decades or years? Or do you buy stuff that somebody had lived in a year before? It, it varies. Um, I would say the average like vacancy by the time we buy is probably 25 years. Yeah. Uh, so normally it, people have been long gone or they were living there like, you know, probably illegally and in very weird conditions in yeah, 2008 yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the condition we come across is it, to- it could be totally bombed out. There's yeah. literally like joists and brick walls. Yeah. Um, and then some are like a time capsule. We haven't been touched in seven years and it's all the original doors, original floors, trim, you know, crown molding, all this stuff. Do you have a preference? Uh, I mean, it's easier. I think what I was alluding to is like, if it's bombed out, you can kind of do whatever yeah, you want on the interior, but even including like layout with floor plan layout, they, you know, very much care about that. So like financially and, you know, ease, it's, it's better if there's nothing there, but you know, emotionally I, I, I like the historic character. And, and if, if you have something that's totally bombed out though, do they want you to renovate it in a, to where the finished product still looks very historical or in that situation you could do something more modern yeah their term is just compatible and so yeah. you know probably a four panel door because that was true to the era um you know a taller maybe like six inch trim because that was maybe more of the profile of the era hardwood floors like stuff like that so it's kind of compatible with the era but um but yeah it doesn't have to like match exactly what was there because no one knows and it can't be like super crazy modern I don't want to ask like the dumbest question. This might be the dumbest question of the day, but uh, why do states and federal governments care so much about these historical buildings and keeping them historical as opposed to just demolishing them and doing something new? Yeah, no, it's a, it, yeah, it's a good point. Um, so the, the tax credit program itself came out of the 60s and 70s. And I think in that point, we had realized, you know, for the previous 40 years, we we're just demolishing everything. Yeah. And it was all, you know, in sort of northeast cities and throughout the country, like highways, malls, you know, let's just get rid of everything and make it all new. And I think in the 60s and 70s, we kind of went against that. I was like, actually, it's kind of <laughs> nice to. Yeah. Some buildings, certainly, you know, not all of them, but some should be saved and we should incentivize this. Um, so I think that's really the intent is uh, to preserve the character and not to do it in maybe a super regulatory way, which is good. It's more of an incentive-based way. Like, hey, if, if you want to do all this extra pain, we would prefer it was, you know, uh, historically renovated. And, and so we'll incentivize that. Yeah. Um, and kind of keeps the character of the neighborhood. I mean, if so, for example, in Over the Rhine, like it's all National Historic District. Right. Uh, like, you know, low scale. And so they're trying to incentivize basically keeping that character. Is there a, is there a point where the building is so deteriorated that, you actually can knock it down or is there, is there a point where it's just in a condition where you don't have to preserve what's there? Yeah. So, um, you know, in a historic district, you don't have to go for the credits. You can kind of do whatever you want on the interior and then you're just, or even the exterior, then you're guided by the local guidelines. Right. In our case, there's a historic conservation board. They're going to restrict much more demolition or the exterior of the building. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you go for this incentive, then, there's no scenario where they would allow demolition or, you know, basically yeah. non-historic work. And if there's raw land in a historical district, again, this might be the answer you just gave me. Would you still have to build something that looks historic if you did ground up development on vacant land or you can do whatever you want or it goes in front of the board and they're probably going to make you stick to. Yeah. So, so new construction in a historic district, it does not qualify for the tax credits, but it is, bound by the local guidelines, the Historic Conservation Board. And um, yeah, they're going to have kind of jurisdiction over what you build there. 
And is the target demographic of who rents this stuff, is it trying to provide more affordable housing or is it trying to provide housing to people that want to live in something historic or a mix of both? Yeah, it's market rate. I think uh, probably, you know, the millennial and younger generation is maybe more interested in sort of maybe historic preservation and, I don't know, unique kind of interior character, um, you know, well-built, hopefully. So, so I think that's really our target. Um, it does end up being affordable just because we aim for like hyper dense, mm-hmm. very small units. And it's kind of well laid out in these, you know, tenement buildings yeah. where <laughs> they were just packing people in. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, sometimes we're just kind of guided by that. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're, we're going for the maximum density, I think, you know, financially and also just because that's what the buildings allow for. Yeah. And as a result, it's affordable. You know, you might have a two bedroom that's 500 or 600 square feet. And so it's only like a thousand bucks. Do you have challenges finding like subs that can work on this type of work or can most everybody do what you need them to do? Yeah, I think, you know, 80% of the subs are overlap with any construction, I think, like the plumber, the electrician for us, everything is brand new. They're not trying to like, you know, hook onto the knob and tube (laughs) wiring, you know, we're just all new. So it's basically new construction, but then there's the remaining whatever 20%, which is pretty specialized yeah uh maybe custom windows custom doors stuff like that um and so i actually i come from much more the construction side you know i worked at a construction company for a year basically as a laborer to to learn the game yeah and uh we're the general contractor and so we can we can guide that a lot more of like finding subs or i know that this guy can do finished carpentry he's really good i can guide him towards doing this custom molding that we need and you know it'll be a lot less expensive than like some shop or some national shop or something so when they're doing uh, like, let's take doors and windows, are they usually taking the windows off the building, taking them to some other location, refinishing them all and then bringing them back? Or is it happening on site? Yeah, it used to happen a lot more on site. And yeah. I you know, wouldn't necessarily recommend that because um, of theft <laughs> or no, we, we have been robbed a lot, actually. Yeah. But uh, but no, the windows on site, it's just, you know, it's not a shop that's set up, you know. Yeah. So it's better to, to find a place, you know, or a sub that can take them off site and return them in, you know, a month. Um, yeah. And one thing too, is like the historic tax credits are not trying to preserve necessarily everything from like the old time period, like all new electric HVAC wall units, all that stuff. Yeah. And also in most cases, like it can be new windows. If there's nothing there, they don't want you to do like a wood rope and pulley. Like you can put in a Pella window, yeah. but it just has to be like the right profile. Is there so it's it's really the aesthetics that they're most worried about the the guts of the the place is yeah. is all new. Can we just go through the list again of what are the typical things that uh, need to stay and need to be preserved? We have windows, yeah. we have doors. What they, else? They really care about windows. Uh, they care about doors. They care about anything that's there and they see in a photo. Okay, um, which could be like decorative plaster, um, the original floors. Though they often want you to keep, but they can be flexible there. Okay. You know, put a new hardwood floor down. Um, they do like, they call it uh, like the circulation mm-hmm. where, you know, like how people are moving through hallways, where are the units, where are the doors located, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, they want you to preserve that. Uh, a lot of the trim, like finished carpentry, base trim, uh, door trim, all that kind of stuff. Um, what about the hardware? Hardware, they don't care that much. You do typically have to specify, but they're not that picky. Yeah. Um, Paint colors, you also specify. I think they're just trying to avoid like neon green, but otherwise not super particular. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, they want to make sure anything you're adding, which could be like a rooftop deck or cutout, uh, like condenser units on the roof, anything like that is not super visible. Okay. You're not going to add like 
just two story baller deck on the top of your historic building. Yeah. You know, and like everyone from the street is now like yeah. uh, impacted by that. Yeah. It might be sweet, but they don't <laughs> like it. Um, so they, so they care a lot about that. Um, they do care about like drop ceilings, things like that. If you're impacting the space, especially if you can see it from the exterior. Yeah. It's like if you took hardwood floors that were in there, or maybe this is just more your personal preference, are you always electing to re-sand them and refinish them and keep them? Or are you trying to put new floors in? We've done both. I think if the if the floor is pristine, you know, like all the wood is mostly there. Yeah. Uh, it can be easy, cost-effective, and also I think like look very nice to have that original hardwood floor. I mean, it's 140-year-old like solid timber. Yeah. Uh, you know, it costs a lot of money now and you can just, it's already there. Yeah. Uh, so we've gone that way, but then also over time, it's like, well, sound and just ease of install and finding subs that can do it and all this stuff. Like, well, let's just, you know, we should just do it new. It'll be hardwood. Like I would never do, like I would always do a hardwood. I would never do probably less than that. Yeah. Just in these, you know, in this case, but, um, but yeah, we, we do 50-50 and just, it depends on the condition of the floors or. I remember I used to flip homes and it was always exciting when you'd go into one and pull up the carpet and yeah. see not, like the old hardwood <laughs> floors underneath. Yeah. Like a surprise. Yep. Oh, I have a resounding cry of like, it's amazing how much money people spent to make things worse. I know. And yeah, you just see like duck work, like this beautiful, you know, transom window into a hallway of this historic building. And then there's just a duck like blasted right through yeah. the middle of it. And you're like, drop ceilings. Off. You're like, why? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you spend so much energy on this. Like, why? The irony of it is the the like you said, the quality of the products and like the design and character from back in the day. And now we live in a world where I would argue the products are much cheaper. Yeah. They don't look near as good. For sure. Um, people knew how to build back then. For sure. Uh, yeah. And it's all solid masonry. I mean, it's some of these have literally not had a roof for 40 years and they're just kind of hanging out like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's like solid timber joists and hardwood floors. All the woods are solid wood and, yeah. um, you know, like ivory handles, like crazy stuff that would be super expensive now. Like it's already there. Yeah. You, know, you can just preserve it. And the historic boards are, I've, we never, we have never done a project here, but I know of the historic board here in town. They are intense. Yeah. I mean, they mean the hysterical it. society. They are his, the hysterical <laughs> society. I would assume that's kind of the case everywhere. <laughs> if you're on the historical board, you want to keep things historical. Yeah. And so, so again, there's kind of the two bodies maybe we're interacting with. There's like the Cincinnati Historic Conservation Board, mm -hmm. which actually in Cincinnati is quite good. It has to be made up of like at least one developer at least one like financial person, one historian, one architect. And so it actually ends up being pretty balanced. Yeah. Um, and their motive is historic preservation, but they, they can be very fair. And it's led by a really awesome woman, Beth Johnson. Shout out, Beth. Hey, <laughs> thanks, great. Beth. Yeah, she's a, like a great civic uh, person. So anyway, so that's the local level. And they're, they're actually fairly reasonable, I think. Um, and then there's the state uh, review board that we're going in front of for the tax credits. And... Um, they're a little less reasonable, but you know their motive is historic preservation. Yeah. So um, they can be very fair when they they want to be. Can you start construction during the application process, or you cannot start until you've been granted the credit? Yeah, technically you can't start any construction. I mean, you can clean out, of course, you can submit for permits and get financing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but you technically can't swing a hammer until they've approved it. Okay, so. Day comes, you're approved with your credit. What do you get? A document or a promise for something in the future? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Basically, certificate of the award. 
in the for the Ohio case, it'll show an actual dollar amount, you know, two hundred thousand up to two hundred thousand dollars, depending on how much you spend, you know, for example. And that's just a certificate. Uh, typically, you're committing to the finished project within two years. Okay. And and so you just start from there. And you can, you know, they provide extensions, but yeah, you're kind of off to the races to to get it done. If a project goes over budget, do they increase the size of the tax credit or they set the dollar amount the day you're approved? The state credit is capped because they, you know, every cycle they only have a certain amount of money to give away. Yep. Um, so you apply for a number and that's your max number. It could be less, but it can't be more. Uh, the federal credit is truly 20% of what you spend. So that's you know, some degree unlimited. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So getting back to the state credit, that is cash that comes in. Yep. And remind me again, in your business plan, what do you typically do when that cash comes in? So that's getting returned to the LPs in, okay. in almost every case. Um, you know, the rough numbers is it's 70 or 80% of the equity is kind of returned yeah. right back. Uh, you know, you have to finish the project and yeah, all that stuff. But um, but yeah, a lot of the equity comes out just from the state tax credit. And does any of this have to do with property tax values? You know, it's the word tax. So that has nothing to do with what you're going to be charged on a property tax yeah, basis. Totally separate. Okay. Yeah. And then the federal credit, uh, you said, comes in, but you can't, uh, it doesn't come in as cash. It's yep. it's a, a true credit. Yes. And so historically, what have y'all done with your federal credits? Uh, so at the beginning, the first probably two or three projects, you know, we were just very motivated around the state credit and the federal credit was like, I don't know what to do with this. You know, even now, like, you know, not a tax person. I'm like, uh, I can't use it in anyone, asking people maybe. So yeah. it wasn't hyper utilized, but um. But now my strong preference is that we just sell it because to try to figure out the tax implications for all the investors and figure out what that means for the returns and all that kind of stuff. It's like, I'd rather just sell it to somebody who knows they can use it, understands the program, is set up to do it. Um, just sell it and get that cash. That is then you know probably going to get returned to the LPs as well. And could I, Chris Powers, buy your federal tax credit, even though I'm down in Texas and have nothing to do with the project? Yeah. So, you know, non-CPA, whatever disclaimer, yeah. but... Uh, you can use the federal credit against passive income or if you are a real estate professional. So you can probably, you know, I would say you can definitely use the federal tax credit. So you, if I was in a different industry, I couldn't buy it. Yeah, you can use it. Yeah, passive income or if you're a, a real estate professional. Do you have any idea um, how those credits are valued when you go to sell them? Yeah, so we've sold uh, a couple and we're looking to sell more. It, it really depends on, you know, they're going to price in some risk. So the size of the credit, how early are they buying it? How much, you know, when does, when are they actually buying it and when are they paying in? Um, that all factors in, but it's somewhere maybe from the lowest I've seen is like maybe 60 cents. And then the largest or the best is probably like 90 cents. Okay. Go a little deeper on like when they're paying in and do the credits have a, 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 a limit on them? Um, yeah. So I, you know, we have a $200,000 federal tax credit you might buy it for 160,000. And what we have some lengthy agreement, you know, we'll pay lawyers a lot of money for to determine like, what are the terms of that? Yeah. And that might include like 25% of it, you're gonna pay day one. Like we just got this federal credit, you're buying it today. You might pay 25% of that 160,000 in day one. Okay. 25% might be once you are hanging drywall, 25% might be like when you're uh, putting up cabinets and then 25% like a month after occupancy, whatever. Like we just set those terms because you're, you're basically just buying this credit. We want the money, but we can, you and I can set the terms of like when you're paying in and everything. Wait, so real quick. So what you're saying is I would have to have a project also going on that I'm buying your credit 
No, we have the federal credit, which we're selling to you, but you get that at the end of the project, right? Yeah. But you can, you like, depending how we structure it, you can pay in that money earlier. And depending what I need, if I say I need the money Ah, to to close on the building, maybe, yeah, or like, I just want liquidity over this year of construction. Yep. I'll sell the credit to you for 70 cents on the dollar if you'll give me half of that today. And so my risk, if I start buying it early, is that you don't finish the project. Yeah. So that's why I'd buy it kind of in increments as you get along. Yeah. And you definitely, you know, as the investor wouldn't want to have all the money in before, you know, occupancy and the credit actually comes. Yeah. Yeah. That's your risk. Do you ever sell them like without selling them in stages, you just sell it at the very end once you have the whole thing? Yeah, if we don't need the money, um, you know, which typically we don't, we're not trying to sell the federal credit necessarily for the project. Right. Um, so we kind of sell it at the end and maybe there's smaller payments along the way. What's nice now is there are banks that will include it. And so I think a potential dream scenario is you sell the state and federal credit up front and you probably then only have to put in like 5% equity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there's like, you know, trade-offs there, but... uh that is technically possible. So in theory, if you had a $200,000 federal tax credit and I owed $200,000 in taxes, yep. uh, I could buy that from you for one hundred and sixty. dollars yep. And so basically I have a $40,000 reduction in what I would have had to pay in taxes had I not bought your credit. Yep, exactly. Um, and the tax reform a couple of years ago weakened it a little bit. You now actually have to spread it over five years. That okay. didn't used to be the case. Um, so it's still the same thing, but you would technically have to spread that $200,000 benefit over five years. Is there like an online marketplace where you can list your tax credits for sale or do people just have to know who you are and be calling you? Not that I know of that there's an actual marketplace. Um, once you get over a million dollars in credits, there are a lot of like national, local banks, people that will buy it. You can like Google, you know, tax credit syndicator or buyer Ohio. And there's, you know, maybe three big ones. But the brain, da- like the legal brain damage, is so much that it has to be at least a million dollars, and so that's that's something we've kind of struggled with and had to figure out, like how do you sell a eighty thousand dollar credit? <laughs> how do you sell two hundred thousand dollar credit? <laughs> yeah. So the 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 current limit is you have to be selling at least a million dollars worth and for the so big to, players to care at all. Yes. Yeah. And so to sell something smaller, it's more of who you know or somebody knows to call you. Yeah, exactly. Or a bank that can wrap their mind around it, or an investor. Honestly, I mean, if you had, you know a good relationship with an investor that could understand the credits like that, that would be fantastic. Your uncle has the money, has a federal tax liability, buys it. Beautiful. But you know, that's pretty rare. I might need to buy some tax credits from you. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, I haven't harped on this a ton on Twitter, but I just think like that's such, you know, obviously I'm biased and there's risk in real estate, you know, yeah. disclosures, but like, I think it's a fantastic way to, to make money is just to buy credits, especially if you understand real estate. Yeah. Like I know the risk, the risk is the project doesn't get done. As long as I'm sure that that's going to happen, yeah, I can make forty percent in two years or whatever. Yeah, that's yeah, it can be pretty great. If somebody's listening to this, <laughs> somebody needs to create a marketplace yeah, for tax sure. credits. That's insane to me. Yeah, because sure. I imagine how many small two hundred thousand dollars there are. Tons, and the only market that you really have to sell it is who's in your network. Yeah, in Ohio, there's probably fifty a year. At, you know, small credits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and and part of it too is like. The supposed brain damage of lawyers, it's just you're signing an agreement of like, I am nominally buying into 99%. This is how it vests. It's how it pays. Like it's it's not easy, but it's also not that complicated. Right. And so to each time to have to spend like 60 grand on legal costs, like doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. yeah. I imagine it's fairly templated, you know, not yeah. a lawyer. But um, so anyways, yes, I agree with you. Like a marketplace where legal docs are pretty well set up, all that I think. 
could be really powerful. And I imagine it plays in like low-income housing and, you know, yeah. new markets. And I don't know much about those, but it's probably similar. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. Depending on how fast you read, you can look at our deal, approve our deal, sign our deal, and send money for a deal in under 10 minutes, assuming you've already understood what the deal is. Like the frictional cost of how that all moves through our system now is a matter of minutes, and it does not require any human interaction between that unless the investor wants it. We have investors that are in 15 different deals. They can go into their portal online, go to their profile, and everything they could want from every document they've signed to every report we've sent to every distribution we've sent, every point of contact with them throughout the life of the investment is documented in one place. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. Man, somebody needs to do this. <laughs> if, if I wanted, if I didn't know you, and was looking around the country for tax credits, is there a place that I could, like, is there an, a, a government Ohio website where I could go and like actually see all the tax credits that were granted that year and then just pick up the phone and call you that way? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's all, you know, freedom of information. You can request even the entire application yeah. um, if anybody wants to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so the the federal program, you can, there's a website you can actually just search like by address and or whatever. Um and the state is more like press release. They release all the projects. Um, I don't know that there's an actual database that's public, but yeah. you can search for it and they always do a press release. And so just to confirm, I buy your $200,000 tax credit and let's just say you gave me an extra good deal. I bought it for $140,000. Yeah. I can you I'll use 40000 a year for five years to get my full $200,000 benefit. Yep, exactly. I cannot use it the same year. Yeah, you use it. You can use it in the year that we get a certificate of occupancy, and okay. then it has to be, you know, twenty percent a year for five years, up to five years, or you know, yeah, minimum of five years, up to ten. Yeah. So, the and and you said you have sold a few federals. I'm just assuming it's to some other individuals that know who you are and know what you're about. And yeah, we found a good uh, local bank that bought. Uh, current project of ours. Oh, actually, the banks will buy them. Yeah, the banks, like small local banks. I mean, it's it's a really, um, it's a hard pitch. Like you can just pitch it to a bank probably cold and they're like, what is this? Tax yeah, yeah. credit, why would I fund this? You know, yeah. it's risky, blah, blah, blah. But we did find a bank and there are a few that will um, buy them. And, but yeah, the best case is that you just have somebody that you know that can buy them. Okay. Somebody asked on Twitter, do you use credit value as equity? You can, yeah. So that's what we did with the with the bank. Okay. Where we net probably put in like twelve percent equity, like true cash. Yep. And the rest was them buying our credits. Yep. And so as the project went on, they would just keep paying you and yeah. that was the equity you needed to get it done. Yeah, or they're paying themselves, I guess. You know. Yeah. <laughs> was it the same bank or, that gave you the loan? Yeah, they're yeah, I guess they're paying us and we're yeah. putting it into the building. Got it. Yeah. Um, do the deals that you do like they wouldn't work without the tax credit? I think the rough math is like 
we probably get to a high single digit IRR, no tax credits at all. Um, the tax credits provide a lot of liquidity earlier and, and, you know, hopefully the plan is we get into like high teens, low twenties with the tax credit. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, when you're submitting for the application, uh, do you use a consultant at this point or do you just do it on your own? Yeah, I think, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I just bumbled through the first one and then I knew more than you know, most anyone else because I had done one. And so people hired us and uh, we do our own. So uh, it's actually my partner in the business that uh, that does all the tax credits. So it's all in-house. Uh, we're probably going to do less of like the documentation work, mm -hmm. you know, as we're growing. I think a lot of that can actually fall on the architect because they're the closest to the plans. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll do less of the documentation. We'll probably always do the sort of financial piece, but yeah, we've never really hired a consultant to do it. And when it comes to architecture plans, do they have to be full CAD drawings or can they be sketches and just rough? So technically they can be hand drawn. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you need to have plans and schematics. Uh, you know, it's in, in the letter of the law is like, you don't have to hire an architect, but you know, it'll make your life a total pain. Oh, yeah. the, the worse the plans are. So yeah. Um, yeah, they don't have to be, but it helps. Okay. On the consultant thing. And again, this is off of Twitter, so I'm not even sure exactly what it means, but he said, do you use a consultant to, to prepare your part twos? What's a part two and a part one? Yeah. So on the historic piece, there's three parts. The first part is this building qualifies. It's historic in a historic district. Uh, the part two is the, that documentation piece. So a 20 page PDF of like, we're keeping this door, we're doing this with the windows, et cetera. Uh, that's the part two. And then the part three is when you're done, you certify that you did what you promised in, yep. in the part two. Um, so no, we've never hired someone to do the part two. So part one is um, you you can literally just go online and verify oh, that yeah. it's a historic uh, building in a historic district. Yeah, that's like a one page thing. Say yeah. It's old building, historic district. That's yep. pretty much it. And then part, part three uh, where you're sending them the final product. Is that again, just taking lots of pictures? Mm hmm showing them your co or something uh what goes into the part three yep yep co uh photos and those are all to a photo key um they're going to match that up with your part two of like hey in photo three at the beginning of the project i saw this door but now photo three at the end of the project i don't see that door and you committed in the part two to keep it like what happened mm -hmm. um so anyways yeah so the part three is certifying you did what you said you were going to do okay all right a few of these questions are are from twitter so um how do you structure your exits with the tax credit investor LPs after the compliance period? Have we already covered that? Yeah. Um, so when the project is done, the tax credits come right. and and the state comes as cash, federal. Uh, yeah, I, I think we've covered it. There is for five years after that, you're technically subject to recapture where if you then replace all the windows with vinyl oh, two yeah. years into the, pro you know, two years after occupancy, they could take away the remaining three years of the credit, if that makes sense. Yep. Um, so they, they, maybe they're talking about that, but, uh, but by then we already have money and we're not going to screw it up. Hopefully. And, and it doesn't, do you have to hold it for a certain amount of time after you've done, or can you just go right to market and sell it if you wanted? It's similar. If you sell the building, it's also, it's subject to recapture. So you, you could lose the final years of it. Yep. Um, so if you sell in year two, they're not going to take back the first two years of the credit, but they could take back the remaining three. You just have to send them cash back. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it's a three year credit or a five year? Uh, five years. Okay. The state credit 
uh, it's not quite clear, but it they they don't they're not going to take the money back, right? I don't think you're supposed to or allowed to sell, but they're not going to take the money back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not supposed to or allowed to sell in within five within years. five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Is it just a traditional bank loan that you get? I know you said that the bank you work with also did the credit, but leaving out the credits, do you need a specific type of loan or it's just any other, you know, remodel loan? Any loan. Uh, most of our loans, and especially in the early days, like they didn't know what the tax credit was. They didn't care. It had no impact on their underwriting at all. Was, they underwrote it uh, the same as any sort of renovation project. And so then it's a typical loan, you know, 30, 20, 30 percent equity, whatever, 4 percent interest, something. Yeah. Yeah. And banks don't give you like a cheaper interest rate or something because it's historic. They don't care. They don't it's care at all. private banks. Yeah. yeah. They, don't, they don't. Yeah. doesn't matter. They're, they're banks. <laughs> they're banks. They're trying to make money. Um, what confidence do you have in the legislation to boost the credit to 30% and has it played into your underwriting? Actually, I saw that question. Um, I, I haven't really seen the legislation. I know that uh, at various points, they, you know, they've tried to weaken the program and they try to strengthen it. Um, it doesn't come into our underwriting, I think, in any direction until like it becomes law. Right. You know, certainly if if we had current buildings that were at risk of in the future not being able to get tax credits, like that would be something to consider. Yeah. But sort of anything else. I'm like, once it's a law, you know, I'll consider it for future buildings, but until then. And and what was what's that person even asking? Is there something in legislation right now that the federal tax credit might go up to thirty percent? Yeah, I think they're trying to increase the federal program. Okay. Yeah. Why is uh why do state and federal percentages differ? Just that's how it is. Yeah, uh, each state is up to their own. Um, I think there are a few states that don't have a program at all, but most of the states do have it, and they just set up their legislation of how much of a credit. Why do consultants stratify state and federal reimbursements amounts at different percentages, and why should one count more on state than fed when underwriting for total possible dollars reimbursed? I think it's that question. It's just the difference of the law, 20% federal, and then state by state, in our case, 25%. What are you most concerned about uh, as, the in as the project sizes increase? Yeah, I think um, it's really... Mainly, I think cash and guaranteeing loans. Um, you need a lot of cash, obviously, to buy these buildings and to renovate them. You need tons of working capital. I mean, it's it's construction. I guess you know this isn't novel. It's even outside of the historic piece. Um, you just have to float a lot of costs, and there's just a lot of cash. And yeah. so you know, it's like, <laughs> how do you manage that as you double, triple, or whatever in size? Um, so I think you know that's that's a fear. And then just personally guaranteeing loans. Not necessarily that I. I'm worried about it. Like I, I believe in the projects, but there's only so much I can personally guarantee. And yeah, you know, do you have the network that can continue to personally guarantee loans at a much bigger scale? Um, I worry about that too. What's like the largest project you could possibly do in the district that you're currently operating in? Is there like old office buildings or things of that nature? Yeah. So in over the Rhine, uh, you know, the biggest building is probably 40 units, 50 maybe. Okay. But now we're getting more downtown. Mm -hmm. uh, we have like a 26-unit building downtown. And we're looking at like a 75-unit building. Yeah. And so I think that'll be a really interesting scale to get into where it's it's pretty much the same game, I think. But uh, you're able to do like maybe 100 units at a time. Yep. Uh, and the biggest probably downtown is, I mean, they get pretty big, maybe like 300 units. But that's probably the biggest. Are there a lot of people, um, and maybe not in Cincinnati, but just since you're familiar with the space that like should be using them and don't because they don't know about them or they think they're too hard or 
Like how many, how often do you see projects that should have had a tax credit that people just didn't do because they just didn't know? Yeah, I think it's it's probably happening a ton. Yeah. Um, you know, the main, yeah, it's probably education, but it's probably more just like pain and like, oh man, I have another sort of regulation and get approved by this, you know, hysterical board and yeah. all this stuff. And it's not a small benefit. That's the thing. It's like, it can be so massive where yeah. uh, whatever brain trauma is involved, I think is worth it. 45% of your project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think to what we were talking about earlier, it's like, if it's all there and you're preserving it, it's not that much of a leap, you know? It, like, you're saving costs. If you're using the original floor and refinishing it, like, well, that's easier than, you know, like <laughs> ripping it out and replacing. So, I don't know. I think the perception of how difficult it is is worse than it actually is. Yeah. I mean, before this conversation, I fell in that camp. Like, the thought of putting an application together for the federal government just seems like yeah, uh, to be reviewed by the, yeah, 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 like a state board and a federal board. It's, yeah. it's crazy. Um, what would, if you were to hire a consultant and, and you're more than happy to share, you don't have to share what you yeah. guys charge for it. Like what would it cost to hire a consultant to go through the process? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't know, like, you know, we haven't gone out to market much. Like what are people pricing? Um, I think our rough number is, uh, maybe like five percent of the project cost. Okay. Yeah, something like that for the tax credits. And maybe if I even less. And if I didn't know you, uh, and I was trying to do one in Fort Worth, who would I even do? I Google historic tax credit consultants, and that's yeah. what they do. Or are they just architects that also know how to do this? Probably both. Yeah, it, if you can find an architect that knows how to do it and and is willing to, that's probably the best because that's you know the one stop shop. Yeah. Uh, that you know they might charge you for that, but that's the easiest. Yeah. Um. But yeah, there are like historic consultants. They're probably in the same firm that would do like archaeological surveys or uh, like research on a historic buildings, something like that. Um, but yeah, that's probably, the, you know, just Google like tax credit consultant or historic consultant. Yeah. I would imagine everything we've talked about is to the building itself. Is there anything you have to do as far as landscaping or outdoor that has to make criteria? You can just put grass down, some flowers and call it a day. Yeah, not, they're not too, they don't care too much about landscaping. Um, yeah. So from the time for your project specifically, how long are these renovations taking you? So from the day we buy the building, uh, hopefully it's done 18 months or less. Okay. There's probably six months of sort of this tax credit, pre-development, architectural permits, financing, all that. And then 12 months of construction. That's, that's like, would be a quite good execution and even less. Um, you know, we're, we're happy and okay if it's, you know, 24 months or less. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, is there anybody that, um, like goes through the process, goes through the six months, gets their credit and then like sells the project with the credits, but the renovation still needs to be done to the next buyer. Can you do that? Yeah. Before you get occupancy, you can sell the, the building and transfer the credit. We've actually, um, We've applied on behalf of other people and then bought the building and they transferred the credit to us. Yep. So you can definitely do it before occupancy. Everything gets very locked in once you have occupancy. Like yeah. that's a very hard deadline, including yeah. your ownership structure, who's going to buy all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can't sell it. You can't really change anything once you get occupancy. And along the way, during that 12-month renovation, are you having to send updates to the state or the federal program along the way? Nobody's it's just the typical city inspectors coming out and doing their inspections. Yeah, there's no regular inspection along the way for the tax credits. Um, and that can be problematic. You know, we, I think, are hyper-focused on it. And we've done a lot of it. And so fortunately, like, I would say know what we're doing. But, 
you know, if you get to the end and you had some consultant and you weren't quite clear what you promised and then you're like, oh, what, what does it matter? It, okay, I said four panel door, it's six panel. And yeah. I think you could reasonably think that's not a big deal. But if you, but if you get to the end, it's like, you don't get the credits. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. It's, it's black, like zero, yeah. <laughs> you know, zero, full credits or zero. Like you said four panel doors. You, we have photos of that and they're six panel, like you have to change them all out. So we've heard of that happening. Is, and again, you your experience is in Cincinnati, but uh, just, do you have any knowledge? Like if you were to come to Fort Worth, would it basically be the same process? But besides you need to meet the people and get to know them, was it the same kind of process everywhere you go? Yeah, I think it's the same pretty much everywhere. I mean, each state program is a little different in terms of the percentages, if it's refundable, um, uh, distributable is another term, like you can allocate it however you want to the investors. That's yeah. not always the case. So that varies state by state, but I think the process is exactly the same. I know the federal application and that review process is entirely the same everywhere. And then the state is is very similar. There's a state, you know, historic board. I know Texas is actually very similar to Cincinnati's 25%. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's pretty much the same process everywhere. And w- and the day you get your CO, how long until you uh, the state wires you your money? Is that a week, a month? Uh, just you file, you put it in your taxes. And so it's the same as like your normal tax refund. So it could be if you filed your taxes the next day and you got your refund a week later, it could be that fast. But if you don't file, let's just, uh, let's say you finished a project in like, I don't know, August or September of that year. Yeah. And you've already filed for the year before. Do you have to wait until the next filing? Yeah. So there's some odd timing there. Okay. You know, hopefully we're queuing them up or we have occupancy like November, December, you yeah. know, sneaking in the, you know, yeah, <laughs> maybe it's not even quite done, but we get occupancy. You know, we, we're always trying to like you know, make sure that happens the calendar year. Oh, it's the calendar year. Yeah. Calendar year you, you get CO is when you can, um, put on your taxes. So if you get a project done in like January or February, you're going to wait about a year to get your credit. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And yeah, that that probably varies state by state. Some will say when you submitted for the, you know, part three or there's maybe some little wiggle room there. It probably just depends. But yeah, it's, you have to pretty much when you finish the project, you get the credit in that tax year. So is, is that a big part of y'all strategy is when projects finish? Yeah. And we have to be really careful. Like once we're getting into, you know, now like October, November, like, okay, what do we have? What do we need to do? And, you know, making sure we're clear on like, okay, is it when we submit it is when we get C of O, when we get like the T, you know, temporary occupancy, you know, what's the actual requirement and deadline? And let's like make sure we get that because, you know, to wait a year, that really hurts returns. I don't know if you've experienced this, but if, if you, let's say you finished in January, February, but you were given the, the green light, you're obviously going to wait a year. Will banks like forge you cash or can you pull on a line of credit to take that money and pay back investors? Yeah, we haven't done it at the end of the project, but I I would think they would. The state credit is a lot easier because it's refundable. And if you have a bank that understands it, they could kind of give you credit on that you know, at any point. Um, so yeah, we haven't done that, but I think it probably would work. In your uh, market, do you have a lot of competition or is it just kind of you and a few others or? There's a few. There's probably there's a, a couple, like less than five, sort of much bigger than us. And then there's, you know, a lot that are much smaller than us. So there is competition, but I think that's sort of another benefit of this whole world and game is like, okay, tax credits, annoying government bureaucracy in Ohio. I have to do preservation. I have to sand floors. Like what the, you know, what yeah. is this? You know, it's like such an arcane yeah. <laughs> version of real estate. And, you know, it's, it's it can be painful, but like that also means not a lot of people are doing it. Right. Um, so there's definitely competition, but I imagine it's very different than 
you know, the world that we probably see online, yeah, like yeah. 20 bids and sight unseen and all this stuff. It's like, yeah. so, so when people are telling you that, you're like, yeah, you probably shouldn't do it's it. Too it's painful. too painful. Yeah. Man. <laughs> yeah. Don't do yeah, it. I should change my tune. It's like too painful. Like, so. so I'm assuming you have a lot of runway uh, to do lots of projects in your kind of neighborhood. I think so. Yeah. And, and, you know, at any point that we either have, you know, much more capital or run out of projects, uh, it exists in almost every state, yep. including, you know, there's a, in the, I think the West side, maybe of Dallas, there's a district yep. and all downtown St. Louis and Louisville and Pittsburgh and wherever. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that would definitely be the, the aim. Do you have a favorite historical building in the in the whole country? Maybe <laughs> not one that you've done, but is there one that you love? Yeah, a couple in Cincinnati. And if people probably aren't familiar, uh, Cincinnati like Music Hall is one of the most incredible buildings on earth. You know, um, it's where the opera plays and the symphony and everything. It's an incredible building, like 1876. Uh, there's also the Gwynn Building downtown. People can look that up. It's great. Um, I love uh, Carnegie Hall is good or uh, like Grand Central. You know, probably that people know. Yep. Fantastic buildings. Um, yeah, those are some of my favorites. Cool. <laughs> you are uh, the co-founder of Cincinnati Preservation. Yeah, Cincinnati Preservation Collective. Okay, what's that? So we started it in 2014. Okay. Kind of a bunch of young rabble-rousers, you know, trying to prevent demolition and preserve historic buildings in Cincinnati. So the idea was kind of a young preservation group. Uh, there is like an older... Uh, Cincinnati Preservation Association. Yeah. They've been around for a long time. So that was the idea. Uh, so we incorporated as a nonprofit. Uh, you know, it's still active, but um, I haven't really been that involved for a couple of years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Is there anything uh, like risks, maybe politically or governmental, that keep you up at night? Anything kind of going on right now that's on your radar? Not really. I think you had a post that, you know, the president kind of doesn't, I mean, you know, it matters to certain things, but it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, you know, in our world, it's, uh, but yeah, so Trump uh, tried to kind of diminish the federal tax program. But another good part of it is it kind of appeals on both sides. It's like, you know, all the developers don't want it to go away and all the preservation people don't want it to go away. Yeah. And so there's kind of like consensus on both sides, like, hey, we should keep this. Yeah. And, you know, I do think it's a legitimately good program. Obviously, you know, we benefit from it, but, yeah, you know, you have to finish the project. You have to invest a ton of private capital. You have to create jobs. You have to do preservation. So. Um, so I think it's, it's pretty resilient, the program. So I don't really worry about like, um, certainly any like federal politics as far as tax credits or yeah. our business on job creation. When you're putting like how many jobs it could create, are you just basically listing out all the vendors that will be working on that project? Um, cause in theory it might not actually create a new job. It just creates a job for somebody to go work on. Yeah. So it's, it's just like number. So you say eight you know, full-time construction jobs. We expect them to make 120 grand a year. It's pretty uh, unscientific. Yeah. And they're putting in some formula to see like, uh, you know, what that's going to result in. And they're also looking at permanent jobs. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal. You know, who's going to move there and who's going to work there and what that's going to mean for like sales tax and income tax and all that for the state. Who usually owns these properties? Like these is it private owners that own these buildings that have just been vacant forever? Or is it usually now owned by like the the city or the tax collector because they've just been abandoned forever? You usually buying from individuals. It's both. So I think we're right now maybe 50-50 uh, sort of public entity, which is the city or the land bank or like a private owner. Um, and, you know, the city's interest was in the nineties, they were going to tear this down. It's like, okay, we'll just land bank in and hopefully someday somebody will develop it. And now, you know, the time has come. Yeah. Um, so 
there was a decent amount of that. And then the private people is either like they tried to figure it out, did some renovation or bought it in 2006 for two grand. Yeah. You know, the one building we bought was a lady bought it in 2012 for like 15,000 and then sold to us for like 350,000, you know, 10 years later. Yeah. Um, so maybe those are the people making real money in yeah. real estate. Yeah. <laughs> Just hold the building for 10 yeah. years and don't do anything. Uh, so yeah, so it's a mix, but yeah. On the city, on the city of the land bank stuff or what the city owns, are they usually posting that stuff for sale? Or are you just calling them saying, we're interested in this building? We see that you own it. It's both. You know, we'll, we'll reach out, uh, you know, periodically. It's like, hey, what do you have? Is there anything? And uh, we have, you know, good contacts. The development office in the city is very good. Yeah. Um, but then they also, I think maybe by law or statute or whatever, will publicly release any building available to be developed. They'll release like an RFP and say, hey, we have this. We bought a building. Um eight unit building like this where they release this public RFP. They say, anyone who wants to develop this, submit your proposal. Yep. And then they'll, uh, you know, sell it okay. based on that. And on, on vacant land, uh, if you do a new development in a historic district, can you get a historic tax credit for brand new development? No, credit's only for uh, renovation. Existing structure. Yeah. Uh, when I think about, not even these types, but, you know, I've had friends that have done remodels where, you get a budget and then you actually get into the renovation. You realize you didn't think of these 15 things and structurally and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything you've learned along the way where maybe early on, maybe you really missed a budget? Like when I think of what you're buying where you're just totally redoing it, does it almost function like a new construction budget since it is bare bones? Or are there things that you've learned along the way that you double check now that you you know maybe weren't obvious early on? Yeah, I think definitely, uh, uh, I think two parts to that. One is I learned early on that we're, n- we're never going to scab on to like an existing system. You know, we did a building that we were kind of partners in where, well, all the lights turn on. So how much could the electric be? It's like, well, the electrician shows up all knob and tube. Once he gets into it, he's like, I'm not touching that. I have to replace everything, blah, blah, blah. You know, I think people doing like lighter flips and stuff, no way more in that world, probably how to save costs. For me, I'm just like, everything's going to be new. Yeah. I'm not trying to mess. I like, Oh, can we save this cast iron pipe? Like, no, you know, like yeah. no way. So, so that I've learned of like, everything's new. We underwrite it. We budget as though everything's new, brand new roof, brand new everything. And the only surprise would be on the positive side of like, actually this roof is only, you know, seven years old when you get into it or whatever. Yeah. And we can save some cost. Um, yeah. The other piece is, um, I forget. <laughs> Have you ever come across any like little treasures in these old things? Yeah. Just things that, you know, when you, I don't know, ripped out a wall or pulled up the floor, you saw something from just way back when. Yeah. Yeah. A bunch actually. Anything uh, that comes to mind? Uh, yeah. So I remember the the previous point was, um, sorry. One thing we're especially looking for is like the code based stuff. That okay. will be the surprise where you, you know, I, we go in and think, oh, this building doesn't need a sprinkler. It's only four stories. In our previous four-story building, we didn't have to. Well, we're not architects. We don't know the code front and back. And once we get to the permits, like, actually, you do need a sprinkler. Okay, there's a surprise $50,000 cost. Yep. And so we've done much more on the front end of, like, engaging with architects, getting as far along in permit as we can. Yeah. To know, like, what those sort of permit and building costs are going to be. Got it. Um, but, yeah, as far as treasures, so we always do a good job of, like, uh, keeping the wallpaper. Mm-hmm. In, um, in almost every building we've done, I think over time, there's just, like, eight layers of wallpaper, you know? One went out of fashion. They put a new one up, you know, and so on. And so we'll keep those. And they're like hand stenciled, you know, balloons with a cat. There's like 
uh, you know, these like scenes of an English countryside or whatever. And so we keep those, we frame them, and as much as we can, we'll then give them like to the investors. Uh, we found a teacup that was from Germany and it's labeled on the bottom. We still have that. We found an old beer bottle. Um, I heard a story of like a Mexican coin and floorboards in Cincinnati. So we're always kind of on the lookout. One, actually, I was like doing the demo of plaster, just ripping it down from the ceiling. And I just mm-hmm. look and I just see like a beer bottle sitting straight ahead, sitting on top of the plaster. Really? Like, who knows? hundred years probably just sitting right there. <laughs> what, what are the bi- biggest differences? And in, in maybe there's really not many, but how people used to build things back then, maybe it's layout or, you know, they had smaller kitchens back then. That wasn't as big of a deal. Like as you look at modern day architecture versus you know, what you're dealing with, are there things that stand out that just show how people lived so differently back then? Yeah, certainly much more confined, like much smaller spaces. Yep. Um, yeah, smaller kitchens. I think the kitchen, especially in this, you know, most of these buildings weren't super wealthy people. It, the, the kitchen was very utilitarian. Like mm-hmm. that's where you're, you know, providing sustenance and it's dirty and it's hot. And so like, that's a very small part of it where, yeah. you know, now that's like the focus of the house, our, our homes. Yeah. Um, so a lot smaller, you know, I, I think just much, much more well-built. I think, you know, they were partially limited by the materials they had. They only just had like old growth trees. So they just had to use that. Right. They only had like brick, you know, um, but it's just like such solid construction. Uh, I think they were probably just a lot more like true craftspeople. You can see it, you know, in the, when we're redeveloping. Um, and so, yeah, I think things were, you know, just built more solidly now. I think it's kind of much more mass produced now and a little more inexpensive materials, uh, less long lasting. It will, you know, we'll replace the kitchen in 10 years. Like who cares? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's more the sentiment now, but, um, but yeah, much, I think just much smaller. And one thing we find is in the early 1900s, they started to like mandate indoor plumbing and indoor airflow. Yeah. <laughs> which they didn't have you know, yeah. <laughs> before then. And so you see that kind of scabbed in where there's like this half level bathroom in a stairwell because, all of a sudden, 20 years into the building's life, they had to add a bathroom, you yeah. know, instead of the uh, you know, outhouse out back. Um, so, yeah, you see that too, kind of like transitions over time where this might have been like a 1930s thing. This was like 1890s thing. And you can see like the lines and the, uh, you know, elements of, of the change over time. That's awesome, man. Yeah. You get to live in a, in a time <laughs> capsule. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot. Is there anything I didn't ask? Anything else that a rookie like me wouldn't have known to ask? Uh, I think one, it's, you know, what buildings can get the credits. Yeah. Um, so typically it has to be 50 years or older. Okay. In a historic district or individually registered. Okay. Uh, and, and when they're registered, who's registering the state or so can an individual go say, I want this to be preserved. An individual can nominate to register any building. Okay. Um, Yeah. And like so, I could go take this office building right now and in theory, at least go apply to make it a historical deal. Yeah. Yep. Any, any building in the country, I think 50 years older. Okay. Um, so I couldn't do this. Yeah. One. Could, you know, you can nominate and then, you know, that gets into, it has to be depending probably on the area, like approved by city council and you have to write up this whole report and all this stuff. But, um, but yeah, we're looking at a building now. It's happened a few times in Cincinnati where, uh, it's a historic building. It's, you know, 1910 or whatever, but it's just not in a historic district. And so they'll commit a year to get it registered to then get these tax credits. Got it. Yeah. And so in that situation, you would say as soon as that is registered, I'll, I would buy it. Yeah. Hopefully you could get it under contract for that period of time. Uh, I mean, it could take up to a year. So, you know, we're looking at a project now that where that's the case. And, yeah. uh, 
you know, how much risk do you take in sort of the designation process? But yeah. we did a, a fair amount of legwork on that. And I, I think it's like 80% plus probability that you get the designation. And on that 50 year thing where it, it must be 50 years old, obviously yeah. a building that's 49 years old this year will be 50 next year. Is there kind of this influx every year that, you know, these historians and the state, as soon as they get to 50, they start trying to rush to get more properties approved? Yeah. And, it, you know, it's it takes money and time to kind of designate an individual building or even to expand a district or to create a district. Like it's a lot of energy and, and time. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not it doesn't it doesn't happen like super frequently. And it takes somebody to drive that. And like the city or municipality is probably not going to do it. Right. So it's like local preservation groups or individuals um, that are you know creating new districts, expanding districts. And this is happening all the time in you know, New York City and elsewhere. Like how much can we expand? Uh, you know, which of course is maybe competing with, well, we don't want it to expand. I don't want my building to now be in this historic district or yeah. I want to do a new development here. Um, so they're kind of competing interests. So, um, but yeah, it means kind of a rolling thing where now, you know, the mid-century modern, even those buildings are, you know, now historic and yep. getting even later now into the probably 70s. I haven't asked this, but can you get a building out of a historic designation or is that just a nightmare? Um, I don't think you can. But even in our historic districts, yeah. you know, demolitions happen. It goes in front of the board. There's a case to be made in, in Ohio or in Cincinnati that you have to prove like an economic hardship. And so you say like, this building does not make financial sense. I cannot upkeep it. And so I can demolish it. And that, that does happen. So yeah, um, I think it's all like litigated. Yeah. All right, man, this has been uh, fantastic. What is kind of the end goal? Just keep, plowing away and doing more buildings or is there a, a bigger vision or? Yeah. I mean, I think the model applies, you know, certainly a lot more to do in Cincinnati and then uh, outside of it. I think it could be done most places in this country. Yeah. And uh, that's always kind of been the ambition to be like a very large, you know, national developer. And then maybe at some point figure out what this looks like abroad. Yeah. <laughs> is there any book or uh, like a website or a blog where people can go read more on this kind of world? Yeah, I haven't. There, there aren't a lot of good resources. Um, you know, we've written some on our site, the historic tax credit piece itself. Mm -hmm. The uh, the Ohio website, it's Ohio Development Services, the you know state tax credit. There, yeah. yeah, that resource is quite good. Um the federal, the National Park Service one is very bad. Yeah. So you're not, it's probably not going to help much. The price, the price. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, just the real estate books. Yeah. Uh, you know, outside of the tax credit world. John, this has been awesome. Thanks, Chris. I Thanks appreciate a lot. it. Yeah. I really I, appreciate it. I, I learned a ton today. Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan and, you know, admire from afar. So I appreciate the time and vice versa. Thanks for coming to Fort Worth. Thanks. Appreciate it. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.